Uh, well, good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is Stuart Corbridge. I'm one of the pro directors here at LSE, and it's a great pleasure to welcome you to the school tonight uh, for the launch in the UK of this year's UNCTAD Trade and Development Report. Uh, I think this is the fifth year in a row that LSE has been asked to host the launch of the annual report of the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development, and of course we're always pleased uh, to do this. UNCTAD, as most of you will know, was set up in 1964, and it seemed very much as a counterweight to both the, the World Bank and the IMF, uh, I mean, at least intellectually, if not always not financially. <laughs> um, many of you will also know, here on the screen, of course, that the focus of the 2010 UNCTAD Trade and Development Report is on the prospects for employment growth in developing countries, many of which, of course, are still very strongly affected by the global economic crisis. Uh, we hear a lot about jobless recovery in the United States and Western Europe these days, uh, but even in India, which has had, even through the crisis, rates of economic growth approaching 6, 8 or 10 percent per annum, there have been very marked and vocal concerns uh, about the lack of employment prospects for many ordinary people. So this year's report from UNCTAD considers why jobless recoveries are taking place, apparently, in different parts of the world. Uh, subtitled Employment, Labour Markets and Development, it recommends, and I quote, a fundamental change in the assignment of economic policies to allow for growth, inclusion, high employment and monetary stability at the same time. Now, if you've been to one of these events before, you'll, you'll know that it takes uh, a fairly um, logical, I hope, uh, but common format. Um, hopefully everybody's got their pages and mobile phones turned off by now. Uh, we're going to have first Dr. Heiner Flasbeck uh, from UNCTAD give a summary of the main propositions and proposals of the report, and then the respondent will be Professor Robert Wade here to my right immediately from the London School of Economics. I think to make it more seamless, because Hein is going to speak for about half an hour and Robert probably for about 15 minutes, I'll give an introduction to both of them now. Uh, then I can sit down, get out of the way and hand over to you both. And after both Heiner and Robert have spoken, uh, there'll be time, of course, for question and answers. When we get to question and answers, please keep your questions short and sharp. A microphone, I think, will come to you, and then we'll get responses from, from Heiner and from Robert. Dr. Heiner Flasbeck is the Director of the Division on Globalization and Development Strategies in the UNCTAD Secretariat. He led the team which prepared the 2010 Trade and Development Report. Dr. Flasbeck is a member of the Commission on the Measurement of Economic Performance and Social Progress that was established by President Sarkozy of France in 2008. Key members would include Amartya Sen, Bina Agarwal from Delhi, Joseph Stiglitz and others. Heiner is also the author of numerous books and articles on macroeconomic issues, including on the current financial crisis and its impact on the real economy. Earlier in his career, Dr. Flesbeck was the chief, the chief macroeconomist of the German Institute of Economic Research in Berlin. Uh, Heiner has also served as Vice Minister of Finance in Germany, and he currently holds an honorary professorship in economics. I think it's economics. 
at, at Hamburg University. So Heine will be speaking first. And then the respondent, uh, Robert Wade, Professor Robert Wade, is a professor of political economy and development in the Department of International Development. It used to be called DESTIN, the Development Studies Institute, here at the school. I guess Robert is best known for his books, including uh, Village Republics, The Economic Conditions of Collective Action in India from 1988, and the prize-winning Governing the Market, Economic Theory and the Role of Government in East Asia's Industrialization, uh, first written in 1990. Uh, Robert himself is a winner of the Leontief Prize for Advancing the Frontiers of Economic Thought. Uh, Robert's written very widely and very extensively over the last few years uh, on the global financial crisis. So I'm going to ask you, Heiner, if you would first summarise the report, and then, Robert, if you'll respond to it. Yeah, thank you very much uh, again for inviting me to this event to come to London to uh, introduce the Trade and Development Report. And uh, I hope, as in the years before, we have uh, put together some quite interesting stuff uh, for reading and for thinking, food for thought, so to say. And uh, indeed, uh, what we usually do, we have done this time, I think, even more comprehensively. We have been questioning the mainstream thinking in economics in, in many, many respects, and uh, quite fundamentally on the labor market. Because the labor market is the core, so to say, of the neoclassical uh, economic approach. And uh, once the relationships on the labor market collapse, uh, all the rest collapses. And this, is, this seems to be happen, happening now. And I will elaborate a bit on that. But let me first start with the, the global economy, just give you um, a very brief uh, introduction into the global economy uh, after the um, sharp recession, some people call it the Great Recession, to differentiate from the Great Depression, so it was not a Great Depression, but a Great Recession, so it's called in capitals, the Great uh, Recession. Uh, after this uh, recession, global output has recovered. This is quite remarkable and uh, shows that the recipes that were used immediately after the outbreak of the crisis, after the uh, production chains and the credit chains uh, collapsed, uh, the government, the most important government of the world, turned to a kind of policies, economic policies that have been forgotten for a very long time, uh, namely Keynesian policies. And uh, these Keynesian policies have worked quite well. They have turned the economy around and have, first of all, uh, allowed the bottoming uh, of the economy and then uh, turned the global economy around. And you see, in developing countries, we have uh, quite uh, uh, remarkable recovery of uh, growth, overall growth. And uh, we have uh, some turnaround in uh, developed economies, too. And uh, this is the more remarkable as there was really a danger of a Great Depression. Uh, let's not fool ourselves. There was, there was a danger that the world would fall into the same kind of deep, deep hole as it has been in the 30s, uh, end of the 20s, the 30s of the last century. And this has been uh, prevented by very active, aggressive uh, stimulus policies from the monetary side. We, all the major central banks went to a zero interest rate policy and a very aggressive stimuli from the fiscal side, namely bigger government deficits. This, having said, so the first round was a big success. Uh, 
but I'm much more skeptical concerning the second round, so to say. And the question, and this is the crucial question for the world at this stage, how to turn this stabilization of growth that we have seen to a certain extent, and uh, don't forget that growth rates, uh, a positive growth rate after a very uh, uh, steep uh, fall before and before uh, with a very negative rate in the year before only means that you recover a, a small part of uh, what you have lost so we are not yet out of the trough so to say we have just turned around a bit uh, and uh, the question is how to uh, get onto a growth path, a sustained growth path, sustained in several respects, uh, definitely in terms of uh, uh, getting it, uh, uh, the economies growing without permanent, uh, the need for permanent stimulus from the government side. Plus, and this we can discuss uh, again, we have discussed it last year, I think, uh, in this room, uh, sustainable on the, on the ecological side as well. The point is, uh, which makes the, uh, the situation quite fragile, uh, that uh, we have, after the stimuli that we had mainly in the three big industrialized uh, country groups, uh, after the stimuli, a discussion has broken out concerning the question how and when to exit uh, these uh, expansionary policies. You know, the, uh, a group has been founded, it's called the G20, which includes uh, the biggest uh, developing country plus the G7 or the G8 that existed before. And um, in this group, there is a, a fierce discussion about the right way and the right time, the timing for the exit. And this is very dangerous. This is very dangerous because, so to say, uh, the, uh, to get the, the, the right coordination between these countries, if they don't get the right coordination, we're back into uh, global imbalances uh, as well as uh, a danger that the whole thing goes into what is called a double, a double dip, a second dip, namely that the economy after this revival that we have seen in the first year will go back to stagnation or even to negative, negative rates. What are the things at stake? Um, the, um, what has happened is indeed that, uh, uh, as I said, not only the developed countries, but in particular China. China was the country that uh, most was most decisive in fueling domestic demand through monetary policy, through fiscal policy, through huge incentives for private investors to uh, invest in building and other things in, in machinery and equipment, and, uh, and through, what should not be forgotten, uh, through a uh, ongoing growth in domestic demand, which was fueled by rising wages. I come to that point uh, in a minute. In the developing, uh, developed countries, uh, we have um, uh, another a problem that is uh, related to the question that I mentioned already. Uh, the, these four countries are, so to say, uh, the, at the core of the, of the problem that was called all the time the global imbalances, so the countries that had, uh, on the one hand, uh, big fiscal deficits, uh, but, and even more importantly, current account deficits and other countries that had current account surpluses, you know. There is a long discussion about the question, uh, who is going to stimulate uh, in such a situation? And the G20 discussion was, uh, was going in the direction that I think and we think was a reasonable approach, namely to say that uh, those countries should stimulate more and exit uh, as uh, uh, later than the others that have current account surpluses. So the, 
among the four countries that we have here, uh, you may know that, and you see it on the chart, three have current account surpluses, Germany, uh, China, and Japan, and uh, the United States has a huge current account deficit and has a fiscal deficit. It's very important to differentiate between fiscal deficits and external deficits. Very often it's mixed up. If you say, look at the newspapers, you find uh, a terrible uh, melange, a mix of, uh, of fiscal deficits and external deficits. And sometimes uh, the fiscal deficit is no problem at all, but the external deficit is a big problem. They take Spain, for example, is a country like that. Sometimes you have uh, both deficits uh, very highly in the red. Uh, take Greece as an example. There you have a huge current account deficit and a huge fiscal deficit. In Germany, my home country, as you heard, um, we have uh, a huge current account surplus and it's rising again. Uh, and a fiscal deficit which is uh, larger than before but not as big as, for example, in the United States. If you look at Japan, Japan has traditionally, or for a long time, very high fiscal deficit and is the country that is more indebted in relation to its GDP than any other country in the world with something like 200% uh, government debt, government debt in relation to GDP. But nevertheless, Japan has all the time current account surpluses, which explains that they have no problem in, in, in financing their, uh, their fiscal deficit. They are not like Greece. They are not treated like Greece because they, have, uh, they do not uh, rely on foreign capital to finance their, uh, their deficits, their fiscal deficits. They take it from the home market, so to say. And China is somewhere in between. China had huge current account um, surpluses, you know, all the uh, complaints from the United States about China surpluses and so on, and uh, fixing of the exchange rate. We can discuss that maybe later. Uh, but China, as you see in the chart, has moved to uh, quite a remarkable stimulus from a surplus in the fiscal account. They have moved into into a deficit, and as I said, if you take the informal measures that China has taken to push companies, Chinese companies, to do exactly what the government did, you would uh, get a much bigger, a much bigger stimulus. So this would, if you turn it back, this would ask for a very simple solution, namely that China and Germany do more, not only in the first year of the recovery, but in the next years of recovery, in terms of stimulating their economies and uh, the United States, uh, who are highly uh, indebted uh, on both sides, uh, would, would do uh, much less and would hope for uh, the rest of the world, so to say, uh, to allow the United States to export something so that they get out, uh, out of, their, of their current account deficit. But it hasn't worked out because the discussions are going in a way that uh, the Germans refuse to further stimulate, uh, the Japanese are hesitating to stimulate further because their debt is already high. Uh, China has done uh, quite something, uh, so the whole thing is stalling at the moment and with no solution around. On the other hand, the, the second effect which could, could help to remove the global imbalances and make the whole process, the growth process in the next years much more sustainable is the famous uh, exchange rates, what I put here is not the effective, not the nominal exchange rate, uh, the one that is fixed by the Chinese government, but the real, what economists call the real effective exchange rate, that is the exchange rate uh, adjusted by inflation differentials between the countries. So that is, so to say, the best measure of competitiveness that we have for a country as a whole. So if you talk about current account deficits, countries with current account deficits should depreciate their real uh, exchange rate, so the real exchange rate should go down. 
and uh, countries with uh, surpluses should appreciate uh, their um, uh, exchange rate so that the uh, surpluses go down due to a loss of competitiveness. But even this has not worked quite well. You see the whole coordination, the many, many meetings of heads of states and others have led to a bit strange situation. UK has devalued quite remarkably. You see that the broken uh, blue line. Uh, the United States have uh, devalued a bit, but then revalued again in the, in the course of 2009, uh, mainly vis-a-vis -vis the euro. Uh, and a country like Germany, a country with one of the, the second biggest surplus on the, in the uh, current account, uh, has not moved very much and has recently even uh, depreciated. So from both sides, neither from the growth side, and these are the most important determinants for the global imbalances for current account surplus and deficit, neither from the growth side nor from the exchange rate side was a sufficient uh, coordination. So what is, what is the danger of this situation for the, for the next years? Well, the danger is that due to this uh, stalling international debate, we will not get, we will not get any, any remarkable stimulus uh, either from the fiscal side uh, nor from the monetary side. Monetary side is anyway, uh, the interest rates are close to zero, so monetary policy cannot do much, can do a bit what is called quantitative easing, so say, uh, buying government bonds to bring the long-term interest rate down, but there is not much room of maneuver. The big danger is that everybody talks about is the Japanese, the Japanese sickness, so to say, uh, the sickness that led to uh, two decades of no growth, more or less, in Japan. And I think uh, this is, if you look at this chart, this is, uh, in my view, the most important uh, chart to show why a country gets into such a situation. The reasons for the, for the collapse in Japan were quite similar to those in, in the, industrial, the industrialized countries in the last two years. Uh, it was the bursting of a bubble, a speculative bubble, a housing bubble, and things like that. So, but what happened afterwards? And this brings us to our, to our main question of tonight, namely the question of employment and the labor market, how the labor market reacts, the, uh, the question of how wages react in such a situation. And here, what you see is that we have in the national disposable income that reflects uh, the reaction on the policy side, we have a stagnation for these, for these 20 years. It's more or less uh, stagnation, and, but it's a total break. It's a break in the curve uh, that occurred in the beginning of the 90s and has led to the two uh, last decades. So what happens now uh, today in other countries, and here I've chosen the United States, and you see a very interesting phenomenon. Now think ahead 20 years. What will happen in the United States? Is this, so to say, the first year where they enter into the Japanese sickness or is it just a, a dip, a bump, or something like that that will, will go away very quickly? And this is the critical point. But you see, the disposable income of private households, the pri that income that is used for consumption and to a certain part investment, residential investment, this disposable income for the first time since 60 on this chart, but it's true for, for 50, since 1950 is falling for the first time in absolute terms. And this is the big danger, and that is why so many people in the United States fear that they uh, move into a deflationary trap, into a situation where uh, there is no recovery because the private consumption cannot recover, and private consumption cannot recover because the uh, overall disposable income and mainly wage income cannot recover. 
This leads us, uh, and that is why, by the way, this is why in the United States economic policymakers look at the uh, uh, Fed, uh, Fed chief Ben Bernanke and others are so extremely aggressive uh, in fighting, in fighting uh, this situation from the very beginning, not to get into a Japanese situation, because once you are in the Japanese situation, if every, everybody's expectations, so to say, are so diminished, if you really live in, a, in an age of dramatically diminished expectations, then it's getting more or less impossible for the government to overcome that, because then you need a huge stimulus, you need extraordinary stimuli to overcome uh, this, this uh, stagnation in, in the expectation of the normal, of the workers, of the households, of private households uh, that are determining the economy. And if you look even in the very last years, oh no, Robert, give me your pointer. Um, if you look at these years where you had a huge, uh, there, that was the years of a huge external stimulus for Japan. It was a huge external stimulus coming from, uh, from China. They had dramatic increases in exports to China. Even that was not sufficient to move the economy away from this stagnation, from this uh, stagnative uh, period. So this is the main danger we're in. And why are we in this main danger? This here comes the crucial point the crucial point of our report, because this report is about employment and wages, as I said. Why do we get into, into the danger that the economy will not recover? If you look at the mainstream theory, again, neoclassical theory, any cut, cut of wages that would happen in a recovery or some uh, weakness of the economy would automatically lead out of the recovery. Why? Because uh, the companies would create jobs. Once wages fall, they, the, the companies create jobs, and when they create jobs, income rises, and then uh, you're back on a normal, on a normal uh, growth path. This is not true at all. This is not true at all. This is the crucial nexus that is not true, according to our uh, investigations, our empirical investigation, and that is, that is not true uh, neither in developed nor in developing countries. And this is a very important message. And uh, I must say, today, this morning, I found that we have, uh, we have now um, colleagues in the, in the United States that are fully on our side. And I was really surprised to read uh, the following sentences, and i tell you later who wrote these sentences. Because there is um, the question, but is it desirable to have lower nominal wage growth in the current context? Question mark. And then comes the answer. The answer is, for relative closed economies like the United States, the answer is no. You know who wrote that? That's a discussion paper coming from the International Monetary Fund. The discussion paper today is a conference in Oslo organized by the uh, International Labour Organization and the IMF jointly. And the discussion paper of the IMF says exactly that. It says, the answer for relative closed economies like the United States, the answer is no. So wage moderation, wage moderation in the current context will not lead out of the trouble. And this is, in, in our view, in my view, a general rule. Then the paper, the paper continues that says then, for more open economies, wage moderation could impart a boost to competitiveness and thus spur greater external demand. Sure, that's true too. But for the world as a whole, obviously, there is no external sector, there is no external demand. And we're in the trouble that for the world as a whole we need a solution. We not only need a solution for one country, 
and I'll come to ex examples in a minute uh, that show that some countries have done exactly that, namely cutting their wages and sort of beggaring their neighbors by uh, exporting more, by improving their competitiveness and, um, and importing less. That's a solution, but only a solution for one country, because here we have a fallacy of composition. What is true for one country is not true for all countries. And so the world needs a solution, and even in the words of the IMF, needs a solution that is out, out of the neoclassical paradigm that we have been talking about all the time. And if you think, Robert just quoted uh, something from the World Bank, if you think how the IMF pushed countries in the past to flexibilize their labor markets, to flexibilize their labor markets, then you are most, more than surprised to read something like that from, from this organi organization. And this shows at least they are able to learn. And, uh, but it is a rule. As I said, it is a rule. You have to if you look at the uh, development of, of uh, growth and, GDP, uh, and, and employment, if you look at employment for developed countries and for developing countries, you find something else that is very, that is very much striking. Then you find, and which is in clear contradiction again of any neoclassical theory, that you need growth for employment growth. There is something like jobless recovery, but once you have a long time of growth, you, uh, you are able to create jobs. But without growth, there are no jobs. <laughs> and this is at least from 1970s on, if we're for countries where you have data back to 50s or so, like the United States, you find it as a rule all for all times. For all times. And we have asked ourselves the question, is this a global rule? If this is true, then we have to change dramatically the way we think about employment creation and the labor market and labor market flexibility in general. Because if this is true, if you need growth for, uh, for employment, and on the other hand it's true what I've said before, that with falling wages you don't get growth because you don't get consumption, then it's clear that falling wages will never lead to more employment. And this cuts the neoclassical nexus. And it cuts it in, the, in the, core, the core of the neoclassical nexus, because as I said, if you cut this part of, out of it, and by the way, many Keynesians have followed this neoclassical nexus uh, uh, slavishly in, in the last 30 years, uh, but if you cut this, if you say wage, wage, a fall in wages is not leading to more employment, but a fall in wage may lead due to the situation that you need more demand, but you don't get it if wages are falling because employment creation is comes much later and comes only as a result of growth, not as a precondition of growth, but only as a result of growth, then uh, you have to change uh, economic policies dramatically. We have been looking very hard for uh, data for developing countries to see the best that we found. By the way, this is exactly true for investment and employment too. The same correlation, the same exactly, more or less, exactly the same uh, degree of correlation you get for investment and employment in some countries, even a closer correlation. Now we have been looking for data for developing countries. Unfortunately, the data are very weak for developing countries, and uh, uh, you find in the report uh, the number of countries that we have selected to, uh, to do something similar like that. Uh, but what is very clear, that there is a similar correlation. It is a similar correlation. Uh, it is, it is uh, growth that you need to uh, get out of, uh, out of labor market problems. Uh, and it's not labor market flexibility. It's not labor market flexibility. 
that is extremely important. That is extremely important because if you look around, if you see what when people describe developing countries, what would they tell you? They would tell you uh, that for developing countries, labor markets have to be extremely flexible. And I said this was the the teaching of the of the International Monetary Fund of the World Bank of all institutions in the past. The labor markets have to be more flexible. The more you have, for example, abundant labor, you have people working on the, in the rural uh, side of the economies. Take China. Everybody would have told you, oh, China needs an extremely flexible labor market. The reality is just the other way around. The reality may be, think about it, the reality may be that it's just the other way around. That even in cases where you have huge supply of, uh, of labor, where you have huge amounts of unemployed people, it is no solution to make the labor market flexible, but to look for conditions under which wages can rise even if the labor market is characterized by a huge uh, surplus uh, supply. This is, this is, in my view, really uh, a total change of the paradigm. Because the surplus supply of labor is the argument that is used, that is used for all countries in the world uh, for an assignment of policies where you say the flexibility of the labor market creates employment. Uh, you may have uh, growth by fiscal policy or monetary policy, but uh, don't touch the labor market in terms of uh, reviving economies and uh, getting uh, economies to a sustainable path. But we have now reached a limit. As I said, with this, with this situation, we're in the United States for the first time, we are in danger of getting into a trap of falling wages and falling disposable income, and that is due to the flexibility of this labor market. And in Japan, it was, by the way, the labor market is not so flexible, but was very, what was very flexible from the very beginning in Japan was wages, because wages consisted of uh, uh, a fixed part and a flexible part, and the flexible part, the bonuses were paid uh, according to the economic situation. And this led uh, to a situation where income could not rise anymore. And the United States in the past have been extremely aggressive to fight any kind of recession, to fight recessions and the slowdown in the labor market. Why? The main reason behind that was, in our reading, was that the United States more or less knew how dangerous it would be if they once get into this, into this situation. Because, as I said before, you need a huge stimulus then to overcome uh, these uh, diminished expectations of private households. Normally you come out of a, uh, of, out of a recession and the people are optimistic. People are thinking, oh wow, now I can uh, expect that next year things go on as they have gone all the 50, 60 years before. But then comes the break. And then comes the crucial question, how to stimulate the economy. And this is, as I said, this we have to take into account for developing countries. And uh, this is the chart, Robert, you wanted to refer to afterwards. And if you look into developing countries, again, the best data available, by the way, it's a, it's a disaster if you look at data for developing countries, how few data you find. Many people, and this was again due to the neoclassical counter-revolution, have not found it necessary to, uh, to go for good statistics, to improve statistics. But it's more than necessary, more for developing countries than anything else in the short term, to improve the, the statistics. Because if, without a clear diagnosis of what has happened, nobody can give a, a reasonable therapy. And, but what we found was, what we found was, uh, that the distribution, uh, the distributive situation, and this reflects this flexibility of the labor markets, 
in the last years have, has dramatically deteriorated. Everybody knew it about uh, Latin America. Uh, one had an idea that it would happen in Asia, but it happened uh, in a very dramatic way in the transition economies. And Africa is anyway, uh, the labor income share is so low that uh, to, to philosophize about one point up or down is, is rather useless. And this has to be changed. If we want to get our economies on track, if you want to overcome not only recessions, but if you want to get on sustainable growth path, then we have to think hard about a different assignment for policies. Then you need, and the, the word that was, uh, that nobody likes, uh, that nobody, uh, that many people hate, but you have to, to have to use this, you need incomes policy. You need a kind of incomes policy. You need an idea by the government how much wages should rise. And you need rules to, to uh, implement that. And the most simple rule is a, a kind of indexation. In the past, we had indexation. We had indec in many countries, this reflects indexation of wages to past inflation. That happens in many countries to uh, avoid that uh, the, the wage share falls uh, uh, to zero, you have normally uh, backward, what is economists call backward-looking indexation. Backward-looking indexation is a stupid thing because that backward-looking in indexation only helps you to stabilize the real income, but even sometimes in cases where you should not stabilize the real income because you have external shocks, like the oil shock. And then you get inflation instead of stabilizing real income. You produce inflation, and then the inflation has to be fought in the traditional assignment by restrictive monetary policy, and you produce unemployment. This was the scenario that we had many, many times uh, in, uh, in the Western world and in developing countries uh, after, after external shocks, be it financial crisis or be it uh, supply shocks like the oil shocks. You have to turn the indexation around. What has to be indexed? is nominal wages should be indexed to the productivity increase in the economy, systematically to the productivity increase. And this is very easy to implement because the productivity increase is a rather stable uh, variable. If you don't look for month to month, if you take annual increase of productivity, you find that most countries have a rather stable increase of productivity. So if you take the last three to four years and extrapolate always one year, you cannot, you cannot err very much. Plus, and what is important, because we have uh, so much fear of inflation in this world, you add a component that is called the inflation target. You don't look what has happened with inflation in the past, but you add the inflation target. You have inflation target plus the expected national productivity increase in your economy, and you get a reasonable wage rule for the overall increase in, in wages, in nominal wages, and this reflects then real wages will lead to real wages that are increasing all the time in line with productivity. And then you have only stabilized the, the wage share. You're not, this means to stabilize the wage share, but at least this is an important achievement. To stabilize the wage share is an important achievement. And then maybe Robert can tell you more about that because he's the expert, much more expert than I am. And then you can add uh, things to, uh, in terms of uh, personal income redistribution through the government uh, that really improves the situation further uh, to the productivity increase that everyone in the, in the society would get. If you think a, mo a moment about what, the, what it means in terms of 
the rest of economic policy, you find a very easy, easy solution for the rest of the economy. Once you do that, if you st stabilize, uh, you anchor, so to say, as central, or central bankers like to say, you anchor the inflation expectation in nominal wage increases, you, have, you remove the most important danger of inflation. We have looked at, look at this chart, uh, unit labor cost, which is just nominal wages minus productivity, so to say, the increase, uh, nominal wages minus productivity. You look at emerging economies or you look at developed economies, you have a very high correlation of unit labor costs and, and inflation. And this means that with your, with your anchoring of the nominal wages uh, towards productivity increase plus the inflation target, you keep inflation in check. But if you keep inflation in check by incomes policy, you don't need monetary policy anymore to keep inflation in check. And then you should do with monetary policy what the Asian countries have done in the past uh, in an enormous extent, namely, uh, and I show you just, uh, we have done it many, many times, uh, however you move it, uh, they have stimulated the economies. This is the real interest rate in comp comparison to the real growth rate in some two or three Asian countries. And what you see that the real interest rate is normally below, below the, uh, the real growth rate. If you look at Africa, you see it's the other way around, except for South Africa and Egypt quite recently. If you look at, sorry, the other way around. If you look at Latin America, it has been a disaster at many times. Although Brazil, one has to say, they have uh, government-owned banks, uh, investment banks that help to finance investment projects by lower interest rates. But if you look at some other countries, you have just the opposite picture. And you have the opposite picture because you're not, you were not able to use monetary policy to stimulate the economy because monetary policy in the orthodox view was reserved to stabilize prices, to stabilize the inflation rate. And then uh, you need very often very high interest rates if you run against the attempt of workers, for example, in, in a better situation uh, to get higher wages if you run against the indexation mechanism. So this has to be totally removed and then you come to a reasonable, a reasonable uh, assignment of policies. I show you my last chart, I come, I'm coming to the end. My last chart is about a European example. You know I'm from Germany, I said it already, and uh, Germany has done the most striking, uh, most striking experiment in terms of wage restraint in the last 15 years. And you know about the European problem, and uh, maybe we can discuss it uh, later on in question and answers. Uh, the European problem, in my view, has very much to do with the uh, neoclassical approach that Germany has taken for some time. So and that has, because that has led to huge uh, imbalances inside the European uh, Monetary Union where you have no way to devalue uh, or to uh, revalue your currency so that once uh, emerged uh, big gaps in competitiveness cannot be compensated by anything and then the countries run into permanent uh, unsustainable uh, situations. But if you look at the last 10 years and you compare France and Germany, we have done it in the box on the TDR, you see something interesting. You see, of course, what I said, you can, you can uh, put enormous pressure on your union so that your real wages do not rise anymore. You uh, have very low unit labor costs as Germany had, or you have a different assignment where real wages are rising in line with consumption 
and uh, uh, real wages, uh, not uh, with consumption, with labor productivity, real wages are rising in line with labor productivity, and you get the following result. You see, if you look at just the exports and private consumption, then you see German exports have been exploding because they did what the IMF recommends to beggar their neighbors by very low nominal wages, by very low uh, unit labor cost increases. Uh, France did the opposite. France had more private consumption. Germany had more or less no private consumption increase in the last 10 years. France had normal exports and Germany had exploding exports. So who was right and who was wrong? This is the critical question. And the answer is that the overall growth in France was higher than in Germany. France had more investment and France created more jobs than Germany did uh, over these 10 years. So even, even if you would be able to beggar some neighbors for some time, you would be worse off than if you go for a reasonable assignment where uh, you have participation of all your population in the success of your overall economy. Thank you very much. I think the shortest possible explanation for this uh, global crisis uh, was given by the Roman playwright Plautus in the third century before the, the contemporary era, the third century BCE. Uh, he said, I am a rich man as long as I do not repay my creditors. Um, and this statement captures the mechanism, the basic mechanism of not just this current crisis, but of all debt crises. We, are, we in the West are very familiar with the phrase third world debt crisis. In fact, the third world and debt crisis tend to go together as one single phrase. And what is so um, extraordinary and uh, discomforting for us in the West now, at least one of the things, is that we have to talk with a new phrase, which is first world debt crisis. Uh, what has happened, uh, and, uh, sorry, the, and the second thing that is very unfamiliar is that the global recovery, as the TDR stresses, is being led by the developing countries, or some of the developing countries. So to put this in a phrase, in the current crisis, um, debt went north and growth went south. Um, the TDR makes a basic distinction between a standard or conventional set of macroeconomic policies that have prevailed in the West, and not just in the West, but also through the Bretton Woods organizations, the World Bank and the IMF, also prevailed in developing countries for about the past 30 years or so, a standard set of fiscal, monetary, and liberalization, market liberalization policies, three kinds of policies going together in the package we know as the Washington Consensus. The TDR makes a basic distinction between that standard set of policies and the ones that the UNTAD recommends, um, not just for developing countries, for developed countries as well, not just for getting out of this crisis, but recommends for the long term. And there is a very substantial difference between these two sets of policies. 
Just um, to anchor the point about the standard approach, let me mention that the World Bank, whatever the World Bank says in its general statements, and it, is certainly been, it has certainly been showing signs of more flexibility, though I don't think it's quite reached the level of flexibility shown by the IMF, as in that statement that you just quoted, that remarkable statement. That's, that statement the IMF said just a few days ago, by the way, so it's very up to date. Um, but the point is, whatever the World Bank says in its general statements, what really matters is what happens in terms of its country operations. Let me just tell you, the World Bank has long used a formula called the Country Policy and Institutional Assessment Formula, CPIA, Country Policy and Institutional Assessment. It scores countries. Every year it scores every borrowing country in terms of a number of dimensions of policies and institutions. So it scores Uganda, it scores uh, Bulgaria on policy and institutional dimensions. And so the interesting question is, how does it score things like trade policy? How does it score things like labor market policies? Because the scoring criteria used uh, reflect the World Bank's view about what are ideal policies and ideal institutions for development. And only countries that have the ideal policies and ideal institutions get the top score under each of these various dimensions. So if you look at the bank's uh, criteria for scoring a trade policy regime, Uganda's or Bulgaria's or whoever's or China's trade policy, then it turns out that to get the top score, you have to have a completely free trade regime, or virtually a completely free trade regime. Secondly, if you look at labor market policy, critical to this TDR, it turns out that according to the scoring criteria of countries from one to five, you get the top score of five only if you have, you, the country, the government, has virtually no worker protections. That is to say, to put it in more palatable terminology, uh, only if the labor market is completely flexible. Flexible is the key normative word. If it's flexible, it must be good. And I think that the very dramatic trends, very worrying trends that Heine showed in that chart showing the share of wages in national income um, over time from 1980 in the OECD, in Latin America, in Asia, in the transitional economies, and in Africa. Uh, these trends show that in all those regions, with the very marginal exception of Africa, the share of wages has been going down relative to GDP, and not just in the last few years, but going down as far back as the data will go, that is, as far back as 1980 in the OECD and in Latin America. That is a really important conclusion um, to bear in mind about what has been happening in um, the world economy. In terms of what UNCTAD recommends, um, the first main point is that fiscal policy should be redirected away from the idea that balanced budgets are best towards the idea that um, uh, fiscal policy can help investment and demand. 
That is an important uh, uh, objective of um, fiscal policy in addition to uh, criteria of fiscal sustainability, which is close to balanced budget. Secondly, monetary policy should target not just inflation, but it should also target investment and the exchange rate, which means that central banks should hold interest rates lower than if they were uh, targeting only inflation, um, so as to lower the cost of um, investment, of real investment, and also lower the pressure for the exchange rate to become overvalued as foreign capital is attracted in by high interest rates. That's under monetary policy. And then thirdly, and this is really, uh, I don't want to exaggerate, but revolutionary in the sense that I know of no interstate organization, uh, certainly not the World Bank, certainly not the IMF, which is recommending incomes policies. And this TDR makes a very strong argument for income policies, partly, but only partly, in order to help uh, meet inflation, to keep inflation down. If, in, if monetary policy is not going to be targeted just at keeping inflation down, then uh, incomes policies can be used to supplement monetary policy in keeping inflation down. But it's not just a matter of keeping inflation down. Incomes policies are very important in order to keep wages rising, as Heine said, in line with um, productivity so that additional supply capacity that is put down by investment can be valorized um, without the country depending on exports. It can be valorized through increases in domestic demand coming through from wages being indexed to rising productivity. Um, I think that this is a very important uh, point, and I hope that members of the press who are here will bring out that point in their coverage of this TDR in order to try and get incomes policies back on the agenda of legitimate discussion because for the past decades incomes policies have been a taboo um, subject. And then the TDR goes on to talk more briefly about the external dimension of policy um, making clear that in, in urging more emphasis on domestic demand rather than on export demand, like Germany has been relying so heavily on export demand, making clear that by emphasizing the growth of domestic demand, um, it's not arguing for a sort of disintegration, a pulling back from the international um, economy, but only for countries to have a more managed integration. And the question is, what does that mean? Well, one part of what a more managed integration means is a mechanism for coordinating exchange rate changes between countries. Heiner referred to this, and I want to press him a bit um, in the discussion on what kind of mechanism might be put in place that would allow this coordination of exchange rate Changes. You only have to say that, coordination of exchange rate changes, to know that, at least on the face of it, it's a bit like saying we could solve the world's food problems by farming on the moon. I mean, yes, we could solve the world's food problems by farming on the moon if we could farm on the moon. 
Um, and similarly, things would be much better if we could coordinate exchange rate movements. The question is how to do it. The G20, as Heiner again said, is barely able to discuss the issue. China in particular has been apoplectic at the notion that um, the G20 might reach some sort of agreement on managed exchange rates because it thinks that the US in particular would use such an agreement to uh, pressure China to revalue its exchange rate, which it has no intention of um, allowing to happen. So the, the big question outstanding is how would such a coordination of exchange rate changes actually be institutionalized? Would the IMF, for example, be given power to authorize changes and if so, what sorts of reforms in the governance of the IMF would have to be made before um, developing countries in particular would accept IMF authority of that kind? And the second element in the external dimension of this new macroeconomic uh, paradigm, the second element is capital controls, such that countries would be allowed, it would be legitimate for countries to put on capital controls both on inflows, when inflows were pushing up the exchange rate, and on outflows when there was a crisis. You may remember in 1998, Malaysia put uh, capital controls on outflows, um, and there was a, a, an explosion of anger coming from Wall Street in the city of London, and people were saying Malaysia would be ostracized from world capital markets for a decade because it had broken this rule of free capital mobility. But it is a complete nonsense to have uh, free capital movements when um, you have uh, cases like, for example, um, Iceland, which was an extreme case. Iceland had high inflation. Interest uh, policy was targeted at keeping inflation down. Therefore, interest rates were very high. Therefore, Mrs. Watanabe and um, people in Switzerland and all around the world uh, invested in Iceland to get these very high differentials. And the Icelandic exchange rate went shooting up making the country completely um, uncompetitive, running 20% and more current account deficits. Um, the Icelandic government should have put some restrictions on capital inflows, but my point is a more general one. We have to move to a international political economy regime where capital controls become legitimate. And then the question is, what sort of international agreement might be put in place to set um, conditions, set rules for national use of capital controls. Just um, finally, um, uh, I, I'm running out, I've run out of time in fact, um, but I want to just refer you to um, something which I think is in the background of many of the issues we have been talking about. This is the kind of bulldozer in the room. Um, and it refers to the share uh, of the top 1% in US national income. In other words, this is a measure of not income inequality in the United States, but income polarization. We normally talk of inequality using the Gini coefficient, but the Gini coefficient is in many ways very misleading. You can understand much more if you look at polarization 
at the top, that is the share of the top percentiles relative to, say, national income or relative to median, the median uh, income. And in this case, it goes from 1913 through to 2006. And you see uh, something very, very dramatic, which is that it reached a peak, the share of the top 1% in US national income reached a peak in uh, 1929 of about 22%, this is including capital gains, then it fell and fell and fell through the Depression, the Second World War, Lyndon Johnson's Great Society, and so on. In other words, there was a pronounced equalizing trend in the US right up until the mid-70s, when this trend bottomed out at about 9%. 9%, the top 1% getting 9%. That was very, very low, and it generated a great deal of anger on the part of people in finance, on the part of the political right, and then came the Thatcher-Reagan revolutions and the introduction of neoliberal economic policies, that is, the introduction of the standard macroeconomic policies that I mentioned that the TDR talks about, and it was very, very successful in driving up this share of the top 1% like a July the 4th skyrocket until by 2006 it reached the same level as in 1929. Both this run-up in the 1920s and this run-up here were germane to the current economic crisis that in a way that I can't explain. Uh, but I think that this also helps to explain why we have had this commitment to neoliberal policies. These policies have been very, very good for the top. 1%, and then the question is how to persuade the rest of the populace that these policies are good for them um, as well. And just finally then, um, again, part of what is underlying these trends is expressed with remarkable clarity by Sir Alan Budd. Sir Alan Budd, you know of as the head of the uh, first, the first head of the Office of Budget Responsibility, who's now just stepped down, but he was also Mrs. Thatcher's chief economic advisor. And while he was a provost of a Cambridge college, in other words, while he was in the free academic environment of a university, he came out with this remarkable statement, which is the Thatcher government never believed that monetarism was the correct way to bring down inflation. They did, however, see that this would be a very good way to raise unemployment, and raising unemployment was an extremely desirable way of reducing the strength of the working classes. What was engineered by Reagan, by Thatcher, by many other political leaders, was a crisis of capitalism, which recreated the reserve army of labor and has allowed the capitalists to make high profits ever since. I think um, this uh, combines with the, the trends that uh, uh, are seen in the uh, TDR of shrinking wage share and national income um, to, uh, to help one understand um, what the political project that has been driving this commitment to neoliberal policies and its the, the good thing about this current crisis, insofar as there's anything good about it, the good thing is that it has shaken the previously almost unshakable faith in the 
neoliberal policy package as being good for um, uh, as being good for everybody, and so that now it is possible to have the the, the kind of um, argument uh, that has been missing for a, a long, long time, and that I think is why the TDR is so particularly important. Just my very final point. What is uh, very unfortunate about the discussion of the past uh, two years or so is how the left, the center-left, of how progressive pol pol political movements, how weak they have been in challenging the, the dominant ideas. Uh, UNCTAD is not known as a radical um, political think tank, but it has come out with what I think is by far the most sophisticated critique of the conventional wisdom. Thank you. Thanks, Robert. Uh, so, an excellent presentation and response. I know that Heiner wants to respond to Robert, uh, but what I'd like to do is to open it up. So, I will ask for three questions ordinarily, but the first time around, if we take two, and then if you take them, Heiner, yeah. uh, and couple it to your reply to Robert. So, are, are there any questions from the audience? Gentleman here and a gentleman at the back. Thank you. It's a relatively simple point, and it's probably better to put it in at this stage. Um, I think the question is, uh, sorry, can, can you remind me what's the question that you put forward? The question which, you, the, the primary question you're going to answer. Sorry, I think sorry. sorry, I don't know anybody's name, so it's a little bit difficult to, to direct the question. Robert Robert, Robert, could you remind me, please, what was your question? About the exchange rate. Yeah. Right. And, and how would it be achieved? Thank you. Sorry, yes. that was it. Yeah. And so my question is very much the same thing. How would you envisage that this change of wage policy in towards an income structure, how would that also be achieved on the global situation? Thank you. Sorry. Point slip in mind. That's quite all right. I, we've got one right at the very back. I don't know if there's another microphone or... I, think we, I don't think we're going to... The acoustics are very bad, so if you just wait a second... Good evening. My name is uh, Robert Dow. I'm a visitor here this evening. Um, I'm curious why nobody uh, correlates the uh, income uh, percentage uh, polarization in that last graph, which is very interesting, very useful, uh, with the separation of the dollar from the gold standard in 1971 by Nixon. Because it seems to me that the uh, expansion of credit from the early 70s uh, which uh, must have had some uh, causation in the um, oil shock uh, was a, s a significant factor in the uh, explosion of uh, money supply from then on across the Western world, which led to the um, uh, polarization that's in that graph and the uh, credit crisis that we've just all experienced. You comment on the yeah. closing of the gold? Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, let me first elaborate for a minute on, on the question that both have been asking about uh, how, to, how to put it into a reasonable rational regime, the wage regime on the one hand and uh, the international uh, question. And this is very simple because the rule says, the rule that I've uh, uh, introduced, the rule for wage, for nominal wages says that nominal wages should follow the national productivity of a country. So if you have high national productivity, you have high nominal wages 
plus an inflation target. Let's take, for the sake of simplicity, the inflation target for the whole world to be 2% or something like that. Then in one country uh, the, where productivity grows by 4%, real wages would grow by 4%. But, and this is the crucial thing, unit labor cost, this is the measure, the, the question of the measure of change, of measuring, uh, the concept of measuring the change in competitiveness. This would not change between the countries. If you follow such a rule, and that is why such a rule you have to imply whenever, uh, apply you, whenever you have uh, uh, something like a currency union in Europe, you should apply such a rule, which was not applied, but uh, it should be applied. So the unit labor costs do not change. If all countries have an inflation target of 2%, and in all countries uh, nominal wages follow the inflation target plus the national productivity, you have no change in competitiveness between countries. Then you have a level playing field for companies, as you have, as you have in any national uh, economy. You have the competition of companies, but you do not have competition of countries as such. And this, this can be further uh, refined if you don't have a uh, fixed exchange rate between all countries, but flexible exchange rate. Then the rule says for the exchange rate that the nominal exchange rate should follow the, the differentials in unit labor costs. So the exchange rate, the nominal exchange rate uh, uh, of a country that has 2% unit labor cost increase vis-a-vis uh, -vis a country that has 4% unit labor cost increase would appreciate by 2% so that the real exchange rate, what I've shown here, the overall measure of competitiveness between countries would again be constant. This is the only way, in my, my uh, opinion, to make international trade at all if we have a chance to make it efficient, to make it efficient, because what we have now is chaos. Keynes said in 1945 already, if you have monetary chaos, stop talking about trade and trade and protection and free trade. It's all ri ridiculous. We don't have, we do not know whether the trade, even if it is totally free, is efficient today. Because, and one the most important reason is that we have monetary shocks. There are other shocks too, but we have monetary shocks that are so large uh, that you cannot talk about free trade uh, equal uh, efficient trade. And that is why the only way to make the whole, uh, to produce a level playing field for companies with all reservations that are needed then for developing countries, but first to create such a level playing field and to create a, a rational trade regime for the first time would be to have such a rule where the real exchange rate is all the time constant. And this, how can it be implemented? Now, Robert's question comes, well, it can be implemented by an international rule that the nominal exchange rate follows the inflation differential or unit labor cost differential. It's very simple, like that. Uh, you do it in an automatic way. You say every three months the nominal exchange rate is adjusted to the inflation differential. Uh, then you need one anchor country or you create an artificial currency like we did in Europe, the EQ or so, and you cal calculate vis-a-vis -vis this uh, artificial currency. There are different ways to do it, but this is the simple rule. And then comes the more important thing even in today's world, as long as we're not able to deal with capital, the short-term capital flows, this would remove the incentive for short-term capital flows nearly 100%. Because, as Robert said, the most important thing that uh, moves currencies in the wrong direction is this kind of carry trade, which is initiated by interest rate differentials. And the interest rate differentials are initiated by, by inflation differentials or unit labor cost differentials. If they don't exist anymore, or the inflation differentials or unit labor cost differentials are compensated by uh, exchange rate changes in the other direction, then the Icelandic krona would have devalued all the time. Then, then this trade is gone. So imagine we have a very simple measure. I do not say that it's very, 
very easy to implement it, and I, you need an institution and all that, and I'm surely not in favor of the old IMF, but maybe the new IMF can do it. <laughs> Let's see. But, uh, but, but you see, we have one, one simple idea. You kill two birds with one stone, uh, and two big birds, big dangerous birds with one stone, and the international community is not even discussing it, is not even willing to discuss it. It is no, no topic on the table of, of the G20. G20 totally refuses to discuss this question, not, but not mainly because of the Chinese. And China have presented this idea, and they are very sympathetic because it would take off the pressure from them uh, to, uh, to stabilize unilaterally their exchange rate. No, it's mainly from the EU and, and the United States. They refuse to even to talk about it because they want to stick to the, to the uh, old idea that the market is the only mechanism to find the reasonable exchange rate. But the market is not doing The market is moving the exchange rate in the wrong direction over years, as was in Iceland and Hungary and many other cases uh, obvious. And we're not willing to discuss it. And economists close their eyes. They do not look at it. In each tech, good textbook of economics, you find on page three or so that uh, the exchange rate will follow the inflation differentials. But it in the world, the opposite happens. And where are all the economists here in the LSE or elsewhere standing up and shouting and saying, well, we have to do something about it. This is destroying the whole market economy. Nobody does it. Nobody does it. Isn't that amazing? So. Then coming to the, sorry I was so long, but it, I think it was necessary to elaborate a bit, uh, on the question of gold and money supply. Well, I do not share this view that it's the uh, expanding money supply was the main source of the crisis and so on. Uh, surely uh, the, or let me say it the other way around, it may be easier to understand if I say it this way. This is the Greenspan hypothesis and so on that uh, uh, we are arbitrarily uh, creating so much money and credit that uh, this must lead to, to uh, crisis. I do not share that view uh, for the following reason. You see, where we are today, we are producing, uh, we, we, are, we, are, we have to follow a monetary policy that is extremely exp expensive. Uh, extremely expensive, uh, we, we give from the central banks money for nothing, money for zero. But, but, the big but is, we give it to institutions. We give it to institutions that are not, that are not under pressure to do reasonable things with this money that they get from the governments. You see, if you are a bank, if you can call yourself a bank and you have access to the liquidity that is provided by the central bank, you can make the simplest, most simple business, and some people here in the one percentile are coming from that uh, sector for sure, and many of them are coming from that sector. You make wonderful uh, money if you just take the money for nothing from the central bank, which is the government's money. It's a fiat money regime. It's government's money. You get it from the government, and you give it back to the government uh, in, in, by buying government bonds for 3%. This is, this is pr printing money uh, uh, for nothing, without any risk. And, and we are all, but we are not surprised about it. We, everybody says, oh yeah, this is absolutely necessary. If you would, if the central bank would ever give the money directly to the government, would immediately lead to inflation. Which is not true. Why should it? The, money, the government could refinance itself much easier. But this, the, the, most, the most primitive thing that we have to ask for if we have such a regime is that these banks do not use the money for casino activities. The money that they get from the government to, to use for casino activities. We have to force them to go out and to search for investors that are, want, want to invest in fixed capital that improves our productivity and our standard of living. 
instead of playing games in, uh, or gambling in, in casinos. This is the most primitive thing that we have to ask for, but we don't do it because we are so uh, blocked by ideology that uh, we never touch uh, any, of, in, any of these ideas. But this shows that, that you need the very rela uh, lax monetary policy, but you need regulation to uh, avoid that this lax monetary policy is misused, is abused by institutions that are, are doing things that are under no control of, of society and the government. And so far, you need sometimes this kind of policy. You cannot avoid it, but uh, it, it, is, it would be, would be uh, uh, how do you say, um, throwing the baby out with the, with the bathwater if you, if you uh, 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 then uh, go to a regime where you cannot have expansionary policies because the money that uh, is uh, emitted by the central bank is abused by the banks. This would be an absurd, absurd regime. Okay, we'll, we'll go to a second round. Um, one at the back. Is there anybody upstairs that wants to ask a question? Um, gentleman here and down the front. Can we take three? Um, if, if we start here and then bring the microphone around. Yes, hello. Um, well, I was wondering if um, coordination of exchange rates and capital controls um, are two of the means that you're using to seek uh, to, to reach your goals. Um, wouldn't this also put us in danger of further decreasing the velocity of money globally? We have this problem with the reserves in the bank not moving around. Yeah. Wouldn't this also make, you know, unemployment mm. higher? D did you say further decreasing, decreasing or increasing? Not increasing in the reserves, sorry. No, increasing reserves and decreasing velocity. Of decreasing velocity of money. Yeah, yeah. 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 Thank you. Good. Uh, gentleman there. I wonder if both speakers could uh, speak a bit about technology policy. You've talked about um, incomes policy, uh, but technology policy, especially in a global economy of remittance, uh, labor, especially re uh, labor coming out of rural areas because of a lack of employment and trends increasingly towards capitalization and um, a lack of employment in rural areas in many uh, low-income countries. Mm. Thank you. And if you could write the way around the back, please. Third. Get another one? Yeah, one. Could, oh, yeah, as long as it's okay. short and sharp. Um, uh, Linda Gorsha. Um, I don't uh, want to be negative, but although you say that uh, labor surplus should not be used to bring wages down, uh, in a capitalist world where the firm rules, that is the way it is used, and, and the global labor supply is growing. And um, speaking particularly from an EU and, and particularly a UK perspective, in fact, the, the mode four trade commitments which allow companies to move, uh, transnational companies to move labor around to capitalize on wage differentials is actually handing corporations a reserve army of labor on a plate. 
Um, so uh, it seems to me it's going very much in the opposite direction to what you've uh, proposed. And do your proposals actually take account of the, the way labour migration is being used uh, in that way? Thank you. Uh, Heiner and then Robert, do you want to? Uh, yeah, on the on the decreasing velocity, uh, I'm not quite sure. Uh, sure, we would see a decreasing velocity. That is what we have at this moment, uh, uh, up to a certain point. Uh, but the money, the money is not, uh, so to say, uh, coming back uh, automatically, creating inflation. If you, you mean that, uh, uh, whenever this is the, the main danger that is seen behind the decreasing velocity now, money is parked, so to say, with the central banks or held in, held in reserves. And then, uh, once the economy would revive, it would come back and produce inflation. Is that your point? Yeah, to employment, but you see, employment is created at, at, uh, at the moment when, when you get investment. But investment is blocked at this moment not by, uh, by money or by high interest rates. Investment is blocked by non-existing demand. Uh, so the, the investment uh, stimulus is not sufficient. That is the situation where we are in the United States. And under normal condition, that is why my expectation argument is so important. Under normal, so to say, non-diminished expectations, you would, you would be able to stimulate an economy very quickly by a short, a short monetary impulse that, as we have seen many times before. But once you are in a regime, and this is due to the 30 years that Robert mentioned, 30 years of ideology of wage flexibility, once you have reached a point where the expectation of the average worker or the average household is such that they do not expect that they come back uh, and due to the threats, the threats on these people to, to global labor supply and things like that, I come to that in a moment, uh, then the, the expectation drops and the people, uh, people uh, uh, re remain in a, in a situation of, of stagnation, so to say, in their, in their expectation. And then you're, you're lost, then your policy is over. Then you have only fiscal policy directly uh, create demand through fiscal policy to uh, get the economy back on, on track. But this is extremely difficult once you are there in this, in this uh, mode of uh, diminished expectations because you need huge stimuli. You need extremely huge stimuli and then comes politics, then come, uh, the, comes the Republican Party or other parties say, well, this will never uh, only over my dead body and then you are politically blocked and you cannot do it anymore and be, because the, the, public, the public believes in these things. Every, every good uh, citizen believes that uh, government debt is a bad thing, that government debt is necessary uh, for a time to uh, get the, the, the private people back into debt, into reasonable debt, into reasonable debt for investment, that is very difficult to explain. And see, this is the big danger we're heading, that uh, in the next years we're blocked by this ideology government debt is bad, uh, in private debt cannot be created, and people are ne nevertheless saving. So you should, you should uh, not allow savings anymore, because if no one, no one wants to be indebted, uh, savings are impossible, savings are killing the economy. So uh, what are we going to do? And, and there is, this is the, the deadlock that threatens uh, all our economies in the next year. On technology policy and, and capital, um, what you mentioned, you see, the point is the point is that I want to make, and this relates to the question of the lady there too. The most important thing to avoid that technology leads to more unemployment. 
is that you give the proceeds, the returns, the revenue that you get through the uh, employment of more machinery, of capitalist machinery, you share uh, the revenue with your workers. Because if you share the revenue through the of the higher productivity with your workers, you will get the demand that allows you to, imply, uh, to, to implement and to apply uh, technologies without creating unemployment. This is the, the nexus uh, that was not seen by, by the classical economists, uh, only some, John Stuart Mill saw it a bit, but Ricardo didn't have it because for them it was, was not, uh, they, they could not imagine that there would be a world where the workers would get, independent of, of their dismal situation on the labor market, they would get uh, the return uh, that, they, that they deserve or that they have uh, produced uh, in the combination of labor and capital. They would, could never expect it. This, but this we have to create. We have to, we have to, and here I come to your question, we have to get rid of this ideology that a global labor supply, for example, determines the wages on the world. In the world, it is ridiculous. A ridiculous idea that we have a, a dramatic change in the capital labor ratio, as the neoclassic economists used to say. We have a dramatic change in the capital labor ratio due to uh, 1.3 billion Chinese and 700 million Indians entering the global labor market. First of all, they're not entering the labor market. They're not here. They're nowhere. They're at home. And they, they want to work at home and not, not in any of our countries. That's the first ideology. But the second ideology and worse ideology is that it implies that implies if you would then cut wages all around the world, this would uh, uh, produce more, more employment. This is not true. This is only true in an economy where you never have a wage problem. And this, and that is why I'm so happy about this, this IMF quote. This is even, uh, the IMF has seen that this is no longer true. It's not true that if you have a surplus labor that you have to cut wages to uh, react in a market conform, uh, conform way uh, to, uh, to deal with the, labor, the global labor supply. No, you have, then you have to stick to your rule that wages should rise with productivity and then you have to uh, see that you stimulate the economy from uh, the fiscal side more than before so that you get uh, higher growth rate and you get higher employment. This is the only way out. I know it's very difficult to imagine because economists, we all have grown up with the totem of the micro supply and demand and if there is too much supply, wait, the price has to fall. It's not true on the labor market. I'll tell you theoretically why it's not true on the labor market. Because the, the supply and demand cross uh, ask for the independence of supply and demand. Theoretically, you cannot have, uh, you can only, the, the, the whole law of uh, price flexibility only applies if supply and demand are independent. On the market as a whole, for labor as a whole, this is not true. They are not independent. Supply and demand are dependent. And so forget about the market solution. This, by the way, uh, a good economist like Alfred Marshall knew uh, more than 100 years ago. Uh, and some other good economists knew it, but it has been totally forgotten. Supply and demand on the labor market are not independent. Robert, do you want to have a last word? Um, well, finally, we come to some disagreement. Um, I think you can agree that supply and demand in the labor market are not independent, um, and you can agree that if this rule of wages linked to productivity were followed, then um, 
there would be many good things as a result. However, um, I also think that it is the case that the huge increase in global labor supply, and here I'm beginning to disagree with you, the huge increase in global labor supply that has come through globalization of trade, of um, labor markets, uh, of FDI, um, has had a generally depressing effect on wages um, not in the because, north. It's but, but Robert, not because it's a nature, only because we believe it. Ah, well, <laughs> um, there, there, there may well be ways to offset this depressing effect, but the fact of the matter is that, uh, at least so I would argue, no. that there has been a depressing effect. Yeah, that's um, right. One, one, because even though people there don't come here and compete directly, they compete indirectly through trade. And while it is the case that many of the goods that are imported through trade from the South are very, very low-wage goods and don't compete directly with goods here, um, to leave it at that point is really misleading. If you take, for example, India, many Indian exports, and in particular cars, are um, at first world levels of productivity but with very, still very low wages. India is now one of the leading exporters of cars in the world. Um, especially India is leading in small cars. Um, and it is competing directly, therefore, with uh, the labor force employed in automobile manufacturing um, in the West. And by the way, it's misleading to just talk about high or low wages, depressing or not depressing effects on wages. The other effect that, is, uh, uh, that we are seeing, and this I think is not well brought out in the TDR, perhaps because of the lack of data, is the tertiarization of labor forces all around the world. That is the increasing prevalence of casual work, of part-time work, of very insecure work. The TDR understandably uses the distinction between employed and unemployed. But the point is that within the category of employed, there is a big step up in the insecurity of that um, employment. That's, uh, I think, something uh, very important to take account of. However, my final point is that what I just said, even though these mechanisms, it seems to me, are operating through globalization, depressing, having a downward pressure on Western wages, um, that is not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story because implicit in the UNCTAD argument is the idea that ideas count. And the really important point about the UNCTAD argument about this um, new kind of macroeconomic policy, the really important point is that it leads to a strong rationale for income redistribution for minimum wages, for publicly guaranteed employment. It leads to a strong rationale for these things, not just on, quote, social grounds, because once something is identified as having a social rationale, then nobody powerful pays it any attention. It's automatically dismissed if the grounds are only social. The point about the UNCTAD report is that it shows very powerfully, in very accessible English, the economic rationale for these things like income redistribution, 
rising minimum wages, public employment, the economic rationale, and powerful people will not uh, ignore economic rationales. Thank you. Well, I think that's a good note to, to end on as we reach 8 o'clock. I mean, it harks back to the final paragraph of the general theory, I suppose, about the importance of ideas for good or ill. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, Robert Wade for being a good and spirited discussant tonight. Uh, most of all, on behalf of all of us, the school, and Robert and I personally, I'm um, very grateful to you for coming here today. Uh, Heiner came over from Geneva this morning and is off, I think, to Iceland tomorrow? No, no, the next two weeks then. Two weeks time, somewhere else. Um, and Heine's been to the school for the past few years to, to launch the UNCTAD report and I think tonight uh, gave a particularly spirited account of what is to be found in this year's UNCTAD report. So thanks very much for coming back to the school.